Well, good evening, wherever uh, you're joining us from today. My name is Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're with us this, this evening. It's Ash Wednesday, 2021. I think I drew a bit of a short straw here. Not as short a straw as in 2016. Uh, in the youth group I met at, we met on Wednesdays, and uh, we had to talk about Ash Wednesday. So I had to speak to some 12 to 15-year-olds in the middle of an evening of sweating and of swearing and lots of other things about ashes and mortality. I think I need to have words with my agent. Ash Wednesday is hard this year to speak into because, well, it's been a hard season. 2020 was hard enough, and now 2020 is over. It's 2021, but it feels the same as 2020. Same, but different, but mostly the same, but harder, because we thought it was going to be a lot more different. As Alistair said in his blog on Lent this year, did Lent 2020 even end? It doesn't feel like it. Ash Wednesday marks the first day of Lent. It reminds us of our mortality, our limits, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. But usually, Ash Wednesday is like a cold shower, jolting us out of the comfortable, lukewarm life where we assume that we'll live forever because death feels so distant. This year, however, the pandemic has rubbed our faces in death, mortality, fragility, and brokenness. Many are grieving, exhausted, lonely, overwhelmed. Perhaps that's you this evening. We thought that it was going to be like a 40-day wilderness, but it feels more like the 40 years. And so as we enter Lent this year, I want to invite us gently to view the wilderness differently. To see the wilderness as a place where we are able to receive something from God, something unexpected, something wild, something gracious from him. And so we're continuing in our walk through Luke's gospel, and we are focusing on the verses 19 and 20 this evening. Let me read that again for us. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So as we begin, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today by your by your word, uh, by your written words here, but more supremely by your living word, Jesus Christ. That your spirit would open up uh, these words to us, that anything of me would fall uh, by the wayside, that your words would be the ones that endure and challenge us and encourage us as we step into this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we know if you've been following us uh, so far in our series that John had been in the wilderness. We've heard about that a couple of times. He's a wild kind of guy. He'd been living there in the dusty regions around the River Jordan, uh, just living. The end of chapter 1, verse 80, it says this, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And as he begins to step into his prophetic role. We see him preaching and baptizing, occasionally shouting at people. But at the beginning of chapter 3, we hear that the word of God came to him in the wilderness. Verse 1, 
in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, dot, 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 and Herod being Tetrarch or Galilee, dot, 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 the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. By the end of our passage, verse 19, John has left the wilderness, but not to a nice hotel or to a nice apartment downtown to retire or a nice suburb to thank him for his service. He ends up in prison. Wilderness and prison. If that's what you get as the long-awaited prophet, well, it's thanks and no thanks from me. If that's what the coming of the word of God means, then that's a cost most of us will struggle with, if we're honest. The the wilderness feels dangerous. The wildness feels dangerous. I want us to see a contrast here in verse 19 and 20 between John and Herod, between the wilderness and the palace, between the receiving and the rejection of God and God's word in these places. Let me tell you about Herod and the palace first of all then. We see in verse 1 that Herod is the Tetrarch of Galilee. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. I didn't either. Uh, There are four Tetrarchs in a kingdom um, where each has a quarter power of the empire. Herod should have had uh, more of the kingdom. He was supposed to have all of it at one point, but his dad changed the will to include other people as well. A little awkward. So we see the mention of his brother, um, Philip, who rules another quarter, and another brother in that list as well. And so Herod, Herod Antipas, lives in the palace with all its grandness and impressiveness. I think we see that he's insecure still. He's overlooked by his dad. He's losing battles with his Arabian neighbors. He's fighting battles with his brother Philip, but not for land and kingdom, but for his brother's wife. And if you're willing to take your brother's wife, then really there's nothing that you won't take from anyone else. Our passage today says Herod was rebuked by John for all the evil he did and for taking his brother's wife. We're told elsewhere that he likes hearing John, but doesn't like the challenge that John brings because John brings the challenge of the word of God to him. So from the palace, therefore, Herod sees right and wrong as a game to play, as a power to exert, as a view to manipulate. So Herod locks up John in prison for his treacherous challenge. John pays the price with his freedom. But really, Herod is wanting to lock up the word of God in prison. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants to keep it at a distance from him. He doesn't want it near him. Isn't that how power works these days. Accountability and challenge are kept at a distance. Questions and questionings of of important celebrity people are are shows of disloyalty. It's all too familiar, sadly. But as Herod imprisons the word of God so that he doesn't have to hear it in the palace, he doesn't get the luxury of silence or tranquility. There are no noise-cancelling headphones with this kind of noise. By putting God, uh, God's words and John essentially in prison, other voices move from the background to the foreground, from whispers to surround sound. In the palaces, other voices flood in, demanding attention. His father's voice of rejection, his brother's voice of competition, his wife's voices of expectation. By shutting out God's voice, Herod was grabbed by every other voice. By shutting out God's voice, putting John in prison, Herod was grabbed by every other voice. 
Now contrast the voice of God absent from the palace and the voice of God present in the wilderness. The word of God comes to John in the wilderness. It cries out from John in the wilderness. You see, the word of God does something in the wilderness. It does something different in the wilderness. John had heard the voice of God there and something happens deep within him. He doesn't try to cage it or tame it, but to allow it to do a work in him, to shape who he becomes. He allows the voice of God to affect his inner voice so much that he finds eventually a prophetic voice. Only then can he become a forerunner for Jesus and prepare the way for someone who wins not with angel armies, but with death on a cross. At his very core, he becomes a person of substance, a man of conviction, a prophet with integrity whose message of repentance to turn around was not just for commoners, but for kings, because they were not merely his own words or words that people wanted to hear. He doesn't hold back his message for random followers out in the desert or for kings in their palaces, even if it cost him his life. Here's how the contrast plays out in Mark chapter 6. As I read this, listen out for the conviction in the voice of John and listen out for Herod's lack of convictions as he listens to all the voices. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once, please, the, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of the oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. With all these voices, Herod is indecisive, easily swayed, unpredictable, a loose cannon. With all the other voices, he ends up all ears but no substance. He ends up open to entertainment and titillation but not transformation. There's always a cost, you see. For Herod, the cost was really living, was living a real life that he was supposed to live. That was the cost. But for John, the cost was literally his life. I shouldn't apologize for referencing Braveheart. There's that quote, isn't there? Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Every person dies, but not every person truly lives. Ash Wednesday reminds us of this. 
Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How will you live in between these two moments of the first dust and, and the, the second dust? Of birth and redeath. Every uh, and death. Every person dies, but not every person really lives. How will you truly live in the wilderness of the present moment? I want to suggest to us that the invitation is here for us to, to view the wilderness differently. This Lent, I, I want to acknowledge that many feel like we are in wilderness. The pandemic has been a wilderness of sorts, barren, lonely. Others feel the barrenness of their spiritual lives, of dry, wilting, wandering. Wilderness is not a place we would naturally choose. David was chased there. Moses ran away there. Jesus was led there. But something happens here that can't happen elsewhere. Something happens in the wilderness that can't happen in the palace. The late Eugene Peterson describes this well. I acknowledge that the wilderness is a terrible, frightening, and dangerous place. But I also believe that it's a place of beauty. There are things to be seen, heard, and experienced in this wilderness that can be seen, heard, and experienced nowhere else. When we find ourselves in wilderness, we do well to be frightened. We also do well to be alert, open-eyed. In the wilderness, we're plunged into an awareness of danger and death. At the very same moment, we're plunged, if we let ourselves be, into an awareness of the great mystery of God and the extraordinary preciousness of life. End quote. There's always a tension in the wilderness because the wilderness is dangerous. A tension between beauty and danger of risk and reward, of cost and of comfort. In the wilderness, we're face to face with basics. How are we going to survive? We're faced with the most basic of all, God himself. The confrontation can be seen as a test or a, a temptation. We see that John, in his test, in his temptation, by God's grace, becomes more. He becomes more of who he's supposed to be. And so the wilderness, perhaps, is a way for us See this invitation to, to grow or, or to shrink. What might God be inviting you, in, you into in this wilderness season? I want to say that the invitation is here for us to view wilderness in our lives different than we did before. What if your part to play in this season is not whether you are in the wilderness right now, but how you engage in the wilderness right now. Not whether you are in the wilderness, but, but how you engage in the wilderness right now. There are a couple of options. First is, is to escape, to try to escape. We can do everything in our power to do that. Escape is grounded in denial and oriented in fantasy. It's closing our ears, numbing and la la lying our way our pain. It can only last for a short while, though, before we crash into reality once again. An alternative way is to engage with the wilderness. To enter in, perhaps, with hope and trust. Entering into the reality, maybe even embracing it, if that's not too strong a word. Embracing all of our feelings, accepting them, welcoming them, 
before bringing our whole selves and opening up our whole selves to hear God's voice to us. Of course, spiritual wilderness is not being out in the River Jordan, hanging out with John, or living a solo life out in the prairies. It's engaging the barrenness of our lives and letting the Word of God have a wild freedom in our lives and allowing it to do its work. It's listening to the Word of God being cried out in the wilderness rather than locking it up in prison. This Lent, would you listen for the voice of God in your life? In the words of Scripture, of course, as the Word made flesh, the living Word, Jesus Christ, made real and close by His Spirit. Would you listen for the voice of God, even if it is costly? George MacDonald, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, um, writes this. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said it. Because he said, do it. Or once this day abstained because he said, do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. Have you done anything today simply because he asked you to do it? Have you abstained from anything today simply because he said, don't do that? I think that's a challenge of, of Lent for, for us to listen to the voice of God in our lives, in the wilderness, speaking to us, inviting us to something new. What do you need to put in place to hear the voice of God in the wilderness rather than the voices of the palace? What do you need to do to free God's voice from behind the prison bars you may have constructed or, or had constructed for you? Perhaps there are things that you need to put in airplane mode this season, whether that's literally or figuratively, so that you can hear the voice of God. That's going to be a literal thing for me. Perhaps there are practices you need to put in place that will help you tune your heart to hear his grace. So as we enter into the wilderness of Lent, enter into the wilderness this Lent, as we count the cost as we seek to enter in with hope rather than just to escape, we remember that we are led through, that we are not alone, that we can relate to this God and bring our fears and our worries and our hearts before him, knowing that he listens, that we don't need uh, simply to escape, but, but that we can bring them to him. The wilderness is a place of costly testing and trial in which we see our sins with honesty and humility. It's also an invitation to restoration and renewal as we learn to hear God and to allow his grace and voice to shape us in a whole new way. And the beautiful thing is this. The voice of God is not something that we only hear because the word comes and dwells among us. The word is enfleshed. It's cast out into the wilderness and made to be silent, but cries out in death so that we might have life. The words of life, that we might, that we might hear the yes of God in life and in death and resounding for all eternity. 
So let's listen to these gracious invitations today, this season.